listening to Raising Curious Learners, a podcast from Britannica for Parents, where we talk to experts and discuss issues and trends in child development, education, and parenting. to Raising Curious Learners. I'm Elizabeth Romanski, and my co-host today is Anne Gadzkowski. We're going to be diving into a conversation that we've had a lot at Britannica for Parents, and that is, how do we better represent different types of families? So lately, we've been talking a lot about diversity and how important it is at Britannica that we represent and support all kinds of families. Right. We know that there's more than one way to be a family. There are all different kinds of ways to be a family, and we really want to reflect that in our Britannica for Parents content, in our photos, and in our articles. So we really make sure that we choose our photos very carefully so that we can show diversity among families and really represent what real and true families are like. We need to make sure that we're not only accounting for ethnicity and culture, but also same-sex parents, grandparents are caregivers, foster parents, and even parents who have children who have been adopted. Right. And we're still a new website, but we are working on developing our articles and our our whole library of information for families. And in fact, just recently, we published a piece about families who have children who are adopted. Yeah, and actually, great segue, because on that same topic, we're very excited for today's interview, because our podcast guest today is Juliet Bond. She is the author of the children's book, Jazzy's Quest, among a few others, and Jazzy's Quest features characters who are actually adopted. Welcome, Juliet. I'm so glad that you could join us today. Yeah. Hi, Juliet. Hi. Thanks so much, Anne and Elizabeth. I'm grateful to be here. Well, let's start by just hearing about your books. It's not just one book, Jazzy's Quest. You've written multiple books. So tell us about the books and who they're for. Sure. So I've written four books that are published and they all feature main characters who are adopted or in an adoption triad. And the books are for all kids. They're not just for kids who've experienced adoption or have some connection to adoption. And with the Jazzy's Quest series, so there are three in that series, those are co-authored with a woman named Carrie Goldman. And Carrie and I really made a concerted effort to first focus on a really compelling story, second, create characters that are underrepresented in traditional children's books, Mm -hmm. third, base the conflicts in our stories on real challenges for adoptees or someone who's in that triad. So when I say triad, I mean like the parents, the child, or the birth family. Mm -hmm. And then last, we wanted to make certain that our main character challenged traditional gender norms. So she is a girl who loves superheroes. She's a big Star Wars fan. Uh She loves comic books in addition to princesses. And I think most of the books in the kidlit genre don't traditionally feature mixed race characters or tackle gender norms or include a main character who has a physical disability. And most don't dissect kind of the alienation or isolation feelings that adoptees often experience, even if their families are 
fantastic. Mm -hmm. You know, when you are adopted, there are consistent experiences that many people who are adopted have. And Carrie and I have had long conversations through the process of writing each of the three books about real issues that kids in foster care and adoptees experience. The other thing that's really unique about our series is that I'm a licensed social worker. I worked in foster care and adoption for 14 years. I was a foster parent myself. So I have some kind of unique and specific knowledge to those experiences. And then I'm also a writer for kids and an instructor in the kids arena. Carrie had just published a highly respected adult book on bullying. And that book was prompted by her daughter's experiences being bullied for loving Star Wars. Oh, wow. Yeah. Carrie's an adoptive parent herself. So we bring together kind of a lot of different experiences that gelled to create this series. Jazzy's books are illustrated. Can you tell us a little bit about what the books look like and what age group they're for? Yeah, well, because Jazzy is such a fan of Star Wars, and each book has a different illustrator, but we chose illustrators who had a background in drawing like for graphic novels or comics. They very much mimic those kinds of traditional comic looks. When I say illustrated, they start at early reader, so six, seven, all the way to like 13, because each book is a little longer, each book has higher syntax, each book has longer chapters and longer sentences. So our concept was that Jazzy and her readers would kind of grow at the same time. So tell us more about Jazzy. What are the stories about? What kind of challenges does she have along the way? Where did her name come from? I love the name. (laughs) I love the name too. You know, there's a a little girl um, in my youngest son's class named Jazzanique. She goes by Jazzy. And I just always thought that was the coolest name. I mean, like, could you get a cooler name, right? Mm -hmm. One of my favorite children's book authors ever that I took workshops from, and unfortunately he's passed, is Richard Peck. And he always said he wrote the characters that he wanted to be when he was a kid. So they weren't perfect, but they were just like a little cooler than he was. Uh-huh. <laughs> I feel like this name is a little cooler than I am. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. So what does she encounter? So in the first book, we really wanted it to be an easy reader with a storyline that any kid could relate to. And that's true for all of them. We want like a basic storyline that's universal. So in that first book, we tackled the question of when a child feels they fit in, in relation to their talents and identity. So she wants to participate in her local talent show, but she isn't sure what her talent is. Her best friend in that book is a boy who is in a wheelchair. So he's also in the talent show and he does this fantastic wheelchair break dancing thing that's fantastic. And mm-hmm. um, in book two, Jazzy and her friend Michael, who is just coming out of foster care and being adopted, struggle with issues of friendship and loyalty. And then the third book is a little bit longer. Like I said, the text is more challenging. Their challenges are more challenging as well mm-hmm. as life should be. It's got some some darker mm-hmm. kind of things that we tackle. So they actually go to a camp in the third book called Camp To Belong. Jazzy's in an open adoption. So she does have a relationship with her brother, Carlos, and they get together once or twice a year with the birth family. But she doesn't see Carlos that much. So um, she finds out about this camp where for one whole week during the summer, she can go and just be with Carlos and boat and horseback ride and just kind of do the things you normally do at camp. But she gets to really spend that time with her brother when there are no other birth parents or adopted parents or siblings around. She just has that time to concentrate on Carlos. And I have to say, this is one of the books I'm most proud of of the three because Mm -hmm. I did an artist in residency at Camp Dublong like 14 years ago. And that was their Nevada one. They have nine across the world. So they actually have one in like Australia. Yeah, it was just a really powerful week. Mm -hmm. And so I knew I really wanted to work 
that in there somehow. We decided that that would be our setting. We actually drove up to the camp to belong in Wisconsin and spent a day there. And Carrie got to know some of the people and the players and see how it works. But in that third book, they deal more with issues that are related to foster care. The biggest issue in the book is stealing, which was an issue that Carrie felt really strongly she wanted to bring into the story. And of course, not all adoptees or kids in foster care deal with those issues. Kids growing up in my home deal with those issues Mm -hmm. that I gave birth to. But but it is another sort of universal theme. And so, yeah, we wanted to tackle the issue of lying and stealing and then restorative justice. So you've really intentionally included some settings and some experiences in these fictional stories that real children encounter in their everyday lives. Do you see these books as something that all children would really enjoy, not just children who have experienced adoption or foster care? I do. I hope so. That's That, that was the goal, right? I think these are challenges typical to any, any child, anybody growing up. I think a lot of children and adults are not that familiar with open adoption. Mm-hmm. So the idea that an, a, a child who's been adopted by a family could spend time in the summer with a sibling who's either with a different adopted family or with a birth family, I think for a lot of us, that's that's kind of a new thing. We didn't know that that was possible. Yeah. And I actually, if you could, I, I wonder if you could kind of clarify exactly what an open adoption is and then, you know, close just for our listeners who might not be familiar with those terms. Yeah. An open adoption really ranges. It's kind of a spectrum. So when a birth mother, for example, goes to an agency and is considering placement, she is given the option, depending on the agency, of whether or not it would be a closed adoption, which would mean, and it depends on the laws in the state, but for example, here, until you're 18 years old, you wouldn't have any access to your adoptive records at all. And then when you did, that information might be really limited. But an open adoption, usually when a birth mother chooses the family that she wants to place her child with, she'll meet with them, or she'll meet with a few, or she'll look at profiles of of adoptive families, and then she'll decide whether or not she would be comfortable with sending letters back and forth over the years, or getting together once a year, or having, say, for example, the adoptive parents there at the labor. Mm. I've had birth families I've worked with and, and adoptive families where the birth mother babysat every week for her child. She was very young. Wow. Yeah. And they had a really great relationship and they had created a really unique family for themselves in that the birth mother was very much a part of their everyday life. Mm-hmm. Is it becoming more common, open adoption? I think it ebbs and flows. International adoptions are typically not open, although, you know, in some cases they can be. I think in our country, it's, it's certainly gotten more common over the years. You know, people sometimes choose closed and are kind of fearful of the issues that might come up are. Say, for example, if you know that you are adopting a child whose mother has substance abuse issues, you might be a family that says, I'd be open to adopting that child, but I'm not open to having a relationship with the family. And vice versa, a young woman placing might feel like, I want a place, but it would be too painful to have a relationship in any way. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember when we launched Britannica for Parents, we did an article on how families choose what to post on social media. And one of the families we talked to, they have a little girl who's about two years old now who was adopted and they have an open adoption. And the mom mentioned that she's friends on Facebook with the birth mom and that's how they share photos. And it seemed like it was really a a wonderful way 
to stay connected. Mm-hmm. It can be. Carrie has one adopted child and two biological children, and her adopted child has a very open adoption with her birth family. And mm, almost two years ago now, they came to her mitzvah, which was amazing to see everybody there in the same space, crying and celebrating her daughter's life. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a quick break, so stay with us, and we'll be right back. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. you're a social worker. Do you specialize with working with children that are adopted or the families? What is exactly your background as a social worker? Yeah, so I worked initially in foster care as a case manager. So I was going to different homes and checking on kids and had a whole caseload full of kids um, making recommendations for whether or not they should be returned to their family. And then I was a supervisor for about five years in foster care. Um, We were always looking for, and, and this is still true, you're always looking for a permanent situation for a foster child. You don't want children to bounce from home to home. You want children, if they have to be taken out of their parents' home, to go to a relative's home. And then you want that situation to become permanent. So if if they go Mm -hmm. to grandma's and mom and dad can't get it together, then you try to make possible and and financially feasible a situation where grandma can adopt. Mm -hmm. So I did that for a long time. Then I worked at the Cradle with birth parents. Cradle's an adoption agency in um, Evanston that's really unique because it's, it's been around forever and it still has a nursery so we actually have babies newborn babies on site at the cradle i know and there's like a long waiting list of volunteers who want to come in and just rock babies (laughs) (laughs) i'll hold one exactly yeah they're so cute and that was a wonderful experience um and that was really what introduced me to open adoption because although i had been facilitating open adoptions they were mostly family adoptions so they were going to be open Mm -hmm. so in the process of all of that you've done with your career, where did the books, specifically Jazzy's Quest, come in? Was it you started working in this field and felt that a book needed to be created or was it reversed? How did that process come about? Well, the first time I wrote a children's book was actually when um, one of my best friends from college had a brain aneurysm burst and she had Mm -hmm. three children at the time. And of course, there were no books about like, my mom's in a coma, Mm -hmm. right? Right. So I wrote a children's book that sort of brought together my knowledge as a social worker and also just like what I want these children to know and what tools I want them to have, but in a fictional way. I knew nothing about writing for children, um, <laughs> nothing. So I wrote this and, you know, the family used it. I had a friend do some illustrations. And then when I was working at the cradle, we were talking at length about birth mothers who had abandoned their plan of placing because they were parenting already. And they just didn't know how to have that conversation with the children they were raising like I'm pregnant, but 
this child isn't going to live with us. Mm -hmm. So I wrote something that we were using at the cradle that was like a script for birth parents to use with their kids. I asked my friend Robin to do illustrations again. And then my boss at the cradle said, why don't you contact some adoption presses and see if anybody's looking for something like this? I was like, okay, but nobody's going to want this. I got really lucky. It was picked up immediately by an adoption publisher. And um, yeah, it's been in circulation since 2005 and is just one of those key books adoption agencies use now. That's awesome. Fantastic. So what has been the reader response to the Jazzy books? Yeah, I mean, it's been really lovely. I think that because Carrie and I both have strengths, it's been a really nice marriage. <laughs> Carrie's really good at marketing. So she's been wonderful at making sure that the word gets mm-hmm. out about each book and soliciting feedback from her adoption platforms. So I can read you a couple of responses that are just like posted on Amazon. No, we would love that. Yeah. So we've had parents like thank us for writing books that aren't about about rabbits or squirrels that are, you know, that are about adoption, <laughs> but don't feature like real people, real people. Yeah. One woman said our older daughter is adopted. And I'm so glad this book exists for her, but also for our other child who my birthed. And then there's a wonderful one. This is from a child that says it's very inspiring for adopted children. I think the moral of the story is always to tell the truth. And I like that because not everyone tells the truth all the time and people have to work on that. I think it's cool that Michael and Jazzy immediately become friends in the first book and then meet again in the second book. And I really, really hope that there will be a third book because I really like this series of books. It was interesting to learn about Jazzy um, and how she relates to her adopted family and birth family. That was written by a 10-year-old. Mm. <laughs> and she's in a domestic closed adoption. So mm-hmm. I think she had a real interest in like, I wonder what's out there. What about response, if you don't mind my asking, from your own family and from, you know, the children that you know in your life? Hmm. We have a really interesting family. <laughs> so <laughs> I have three kids. Like I have mentioned, I have fostered three kids, four really, over the years. And then we also currently have a young, at least 19, so he's a kid, you know, mm-hmm. um, that we've taken in. My daughter's boyfriend, my friend Leslie says, you're the woman who gathers all the children in her skirt. <laughs> You know, you mentioned that these books you hope are not only beneficial for the child who may be adopted, but also maybe siblings that are from the birth parents. And so what were you and Carrie thinking of like, okay, here's what I hope the child and the parents get out of these books for both, let's say, the birth parents and the birth child and then the adopted child. Mm, Okay. You know, I think that anytime you write a book for children and you're choosing something that's an issue, I think you want people to feel like they're not alone. So that's true of anybody in the triad to feel like there's as many stories out there to inspire someone to write a book about you and see your own experience reflected in a character. And that's true when it comes to race, when it comes to gender, when it comes to experience, you know, we're all always looking for those experiences that are something you can really truly dig your teeth into and relate to. Mm-hmm. What about advice for us at Britannica for Parents. We mentioned at the start of this conversation, we're still a new website. We're working hard to support all families and we want to be really inclusive. Do you have any advice for us about what kinds of content or articles parents would want to mm. read and, and a podcast they want to listen to? Yeah, ooh, podcasts. Well, if you follow Carrie Goldman as an author, she writes about adoption consistently on Chicago Now. Her articles are everywhere. So I would think if you 
follow Carrie as an author, you're going to find a treasure trove of content about adoption. I suppose I wish that the majority of people understood that the majority of adoption and foster care placements are kind of necessary evils. So primarily in, on the inequity, the resources and opportunities and supports that are available to women. Mm. There was never a time that I facilitated a placement for a birth mother, with a few exceptions, that this woman wouldn't have chosen a different path if she had the resources. Mm -hmm. America has about 750,000 people in foster care. That's a lot of children, you know, in homes that are in some way not perfect for them. Mm -hmm. And there are 143 million children available for adoption across the world. And the world makes it pretty challenging, in some cases, for good reason, to adopt those kids. For example, the kids that we fostered, we fostered for three years on and off but we were ultimately unable to adopt them because we would have had to build onto our home to have the correct number of rooms and bathrooms. Mm. And that was going to cost about $400,000. We would have had to fly to Latvia three times. And at one of those times, we would have had to have stayed a month with our entire family. So my husband and I would have lost our jobs. Yeah. <laughs> we really wanted to adopt the kids and it just wasn't ultimately possible. We stayed in touch. They're in a great foster home. Um, we talk to them every week still, but we would have really liked to have adopted those kids. And ultimately that didn't happen. So, you know, you understand if you're in a position of power, how you'd want to protect kids and make sure and watch over a family for a month, especially if they're coming from another country and right. say like, yes or no, they're really going to be a safe family to place these children with. On the other hand, you have 143 million kids waiting for a place to live mm -hmm. and hoping for a family. So I, it's imperfect. I hope we can figure that out. Yeah. You said something about the foster care system is kind of a necessary evil, but so are, it seems like the protocols in place for how you can go about adopting a child. Like you said, like so many of them are, you know, hypothetically in place to ensure that the child is placed with a safe fit and a family. And at the same time, it does create preventative measures from actually going through with it with parents who may be actually perfect for that child. And it's very challenging. And like, you said it's imperfect. It is. And our kids in particular, our kids were from Latvia. They're still living in Latvia. And their mother had trouble with alcoholism. And there were a couple of fathers out of the picture. Latvia as a country struggles with substance abuse. And I don't know, it's really challenging, I think, to understand, you know, I just, I will never, ever, ever forget saying goodbye at the airport our most recent time. And just the look on especially the middle boy's face, which was just of such devastation to have to leave again. Mm -hmm. Wow. So kind of in that same vein, because you are a social worker and you've had so much experience in uh, foster care and adoption, you're also very hyper vigilant then to what is available in the media for families. Mm -hmm. So how do you feel that the media is doing in terms of creating resources and relatable stories, movies, articles, etc.? the movie that just came out. I actually really loved it. It was very sweet. I wish I could remember huh. the name. It, oh, it's called Instant Family. Instant Family. Oh, I've not heard of that. It's wonderful. I actually went into it very skeptical because I was like, oh, okay, this is a family. Too young, beautiful. It was like Mark Wahlberg or somebody <laughs> and like <this laughs> other gorgeous female mm -hmm. actress who are probably in their 30s and just lovely, beautiful couple, white couple looking to foster or adopt. I think the premise is that they want one and they get three, which is actually what happened to us. And then how challenging that actually is to manage. And I believe the kids are mixed race in that film. So they did tackle some of the 
major issues that are consistent with, I think, adoption today. You have a lot of white families who want a white baby, but they'll settle for a baby of color. Mm. And then they are raising a child whose culture they know very little about. Mm -hmm. Um, And those are big issues right now. Race is a big issue right now. And a lot of adoptions are mixed race adoption and mixed race families. And I think there's an added layer of challenge if it's not a biological family where the kids and the parents struggle to always do the right thing, which I mean, as parents, we are always struggling to do the right thing. And we all make mistakes. I think every child in every parenting situation is unique. So any universal advice would be pretty incongruous. But I do think, you know, my greatest lesson as a parent has been to support my child or children where they are and be present and available when they want me to be and then honor their choices and preferences whenever possible. We're in a different landscape. I turned 50 (laughs) during this pandemic. Happy birthday. Thank you. (laughs) My kids regularly are telling me how I'm wrong, which is what I did to my own mother. Um, And, you know, we all have places where we need to grow. And I think in the world of adoption, in the world of families, I think we just uh, are moving, hopefully, I really hope we're moving in the right direction with the next generation. And just sort of about knowing that everybody's different and every challenge is unique. And there's just no one right answer, Mm -hmm. except be kind and be loving and just try to accept people for who they are and, and where they are. Absolutely. Well, Julia, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on next? Do you have any new projects in the works? I am. Uh, It's completely different. So Carrie and I on this third book, which I'm the most proud of that book. In the first book, we would get together for coffee every Friday and we'd work. That just ultimately became impossible. So we started just taking trips together and going away. And we're in a pandemic and we both have three kids. So there's no trips together away right now. (laughs) Yes. So we're not quite ready to work on a a fourth book until we can actually spend time together again. But what I am working on is a fictional book about a young girl who takes on the dress code policies at her school. So my daughter and I took on the dress code policies in Evanston at the District 65 schools. And when I say District 65, I mean like elementary, middle school level schools. And there are 16 of those in Evanston. And they weren't letting girls wear leggings or yoga pants because they said it was distracting to boys. Oh boy. Yeah. And it became kind of a whole thing. And um, the kids got super involved, boys and girls, picketed the school. It became an international news story. And it was really, uh, really an interesting time in our lives. So that's what I've been working on. And then there's a filmmaker named Sarah Moshman. She's an Oscar winner documentarian who has a movie out called Nevertheless that was slated <laughs> to come out like, you know, April 1st. So yeah, right, yeah right <laughs> as the pandemic hit. So she's trying to trying to get that movie seen all over the place, but she's amazing. And Lily and I, my daughter and I are in the movie. So you can check out that amazing documentary. And nevertheless, it's about, you know, kind of the Me Too movement and how women have continued and tried to persist against sexism. So that's it. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. This has been so informative and I've really enjoyed learning more about you and also Jazzy's Quest book. So I'm excited to, to check them out. This is very important for us as the creators behind this podcast and behind Britannica for Parents just to make sure that we are being very cognizant of including resources for all types of caregivers and all types of family situations. And I 
I also want to add that I just think it's so important that children have books that reflect their own lives and the power of, of story among children. It's not just about, you know, learning a lesson. It's about getting to know a character and a book and these beautifully illustrated stories that kids can relate to. I think they're just such an important experience for children. Thank you. I'm really grateful for you including me in this discussion. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us today, Juliet. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Raising Curious Learners. Special thanks to our guest today, Juliet Bond, social worker and award-winning author of the Jazzy's Quest book series for helping us on our quest to better represent and support all types of families. I'm Elizabeth Romanski, and my co-host is Ann Gadzikowski. Our audio engineer and editor for this program is Emily Goldstein. If you liked this episode, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, and share with your friends. This program is copyrighted by Encyclopedia Britannica Incorporated, all rights reserved.